Welcome to the Digital Shadows podcast. This podcast delves into all topics and philosophical debates surrounding online safety, regulation, and the darker sides to the internet. I'm your host, Maria Algeyer, and throughout this series, I will be joined by a variety of guests from company CEOs, activists, and more. Disclaimer, this podcast is created by Orphis AI and T3K AI. It is intended for educational purposes and may contain certain topics that some listeners find disturbing. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first ever episode of the Digital Shadows podcast. Today, our topic is really just all things to do with online safety, much more of an introduction to the topic that we will be discussing throughout this series. Uh, Today, I am joined by Caroline. So Caroline, would you like to introduce yourself and explain a little bit about how you got into the trust and safety field? About two and a half years ago, I left the nonprofit world and started my journey as an independent consultant within the trust and safety space. Really, that entails a lot of different things from hosting my own podcast on missing persons, as well as convening trust and safety conference in Europe, specifically for the European community, as well as working with T3K on advising on how to to bring T3K more into the US market, and as well as conducting research and grant writing and other things within the space. So lots of different hats, which makes very interesting and fun to be. Yeah, never boring, that's for sure. <laughs> Just introduce myself since the first episode. Um, so yeah, my name is Maria Algeyer. I'm currently VP at T3K, but I'm mainly focusing on their move into the private sector for safety tech. Before that, I had a little bit of an unconventional background, so I decided that I was going to make porn safer. So I started my own adult entertainment site. I ran that for a couple of years and was very largely focusing on the moderation aspect of these types of sites. And yeah, I'm also sometimes sadly known for TikTok, uh, long story. <laughs> uh, Carolyn, what kind of like first inspired you to get into the online safety space? Honestly, it was a by chance. Um, I worked with, so before I moved to the US, I actually worked with the British Transport Police on train crash investigations. And that's how I got involved with police work and investigative. And for me, that was more similar to what I do on weekends is puzzling, of putting a puzzle piece together, but you don't know what it looks like and what the picture looks like at the end, but you're trying each different piece to figure out what makes most sense. And and then when I moved to the US, really the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children introduced me to the online safety space and the dangers and the risks that there are while being online for adults as, as well as children, although it was mainly focused on children. And so I was fascinated by that. And I was like, okay, we're essentially building a new world that is online, but doesn't have the rules or behaviors or regulations that we have in the real world. How can we create the same space that we have created in the real world online so that everybody has a fun and and loving experience online and then can explore without too much risk. I think one thing we do have to understand that we'll never get rid of risk online, same way as we don't get rid of risk offline or or in the real world. So how can we mitigate some of this, the risk and the the, the harm that is taking place? And you say that the biggest surprise was for you like entered this space? I guess the biggest surprise with with trust and safety is how diverse it was. That it didn't, it hadn't defined itself yet. And I think it still hasn't. It's such a new industry. Most people who are not in the space don't know what trust and safety is. So you've, I know that if I'm talking to family or family members, friends who are not in this space, I have no idea what it is. If I then talk to somebody within the cybersecurity space, they have one side of an idea. And then you've got, 
the nonprofits or the internet safety people who have a bit, who have the broader eye. But I think there's still lack of understanding of what this is. So that's what surprised me how how new this industry is, even though the internet and the online world has been around for over 20 years. Like I think for me, what I found quite interesting is that so many people don't actually think about it. Uh, we all use so many different types of online platforms, be that from social media to like dating apps, etc. I think very few users actually put a second thought onto how the safety side of things is done and who's making the, the rules and who's looking at uh, whatever types of content are being uploaded. Um, so what would you define online safety and trust and safety as for those who might not have a clear idea? Well, I think that uh, I would say trust and safety is an element of the online space where companies are helping to mitigate risk for their customers. Um, it's not, it's more than a help desk, but it's not cybersecurity. I know, I know that's that's like two very different contrasts, but when you're talking to cybersecurity people, cybersecurity has been around over 20 to 30 years now. That has been established as protecting the hardware, protecting your systems, essentially, for ensuring that you can write an email or that your website doesn't get hacked. Trust and safety is more about actual users of, I want to make sure that you have have a good experience when you come onto my site or when you go shopping on eBay or Amazon or wherever else. It's ensuring that that is the right experience. And I think that's sort of the trust and safety. And maybe we could equate it to when you're walking into a shopping mall or into a store, that's the customer service. That's the wanting to ensure that you that the customer who walks in has the a nice experience. And that's what the trust and safety community is trying to do is ensure that whoever's online, adult or children, anybody in the world, regardless of where in the world, you have a nice experience. See the content that you're supposed to see, mitigate any risk or harm to that customer. And that is in collaboration with cybersecurity as well as others. But I think that's what that for me, that's how I'm looking at it. And would you say for those that might not have an idea about it, is this like trust and safety mandatory for platforms to have? Like what are the limits on what they can and cannot? So for me, it's right now, trust and safety is something that mainly social media platforms are doing. Maybe some marketplace companies, but not everybody. And if some people, if some companies are doing it, they're doing it under the premise of cybersecurity as trust and safety as a, as a separate entity. I think in 10 years, we'll look at this and think, wow, trust and safety is maybe in every single company as its own department concept in a new industry. There is no standard of what trust and safety looks like like within a company. Yes, there are limitations. I think right now the focus is on social media because those are the companies that are getting hit the hardest by media and the public on how much harm they're producing to their customers. And therefore they need to do something and that's the trust and safety space. I mean, like, I, again, it, it varies depending obviously on the type of platform, be that marketplace or, or social media. But in terms of social media, what would you say like the main types of issues platforms face and have to be aware of? that users might not necessarily always see? I think, first of all, coming from the child protection space, I think child safety is, is a high priority for social media platforms, especially when you have children over the age of 13 or under the age of 13 on their platform. Um, I think the other thing that we have to, that has now become really apparent is hate speech, uh, misinformation, disinformation, uh, as well as fraud and election fraud or election uh, interference, as well as just fraud 
lot in general, even if you're buying something on Amazon or eBay, how is that going to work? Are you sure the customer is having a good experience? I think those are sort of the main things that people are now that the trust and safety community is focusing on. And that could be through with the help of AI, with the help of safety by design, help with just general prevention material or, or safety tips. But I think those are sort of the main topics that the social media companies are focusing on and making a priority to tackle the issue of bad press or bad media. Uh, do you see a difference between protecting children online and working in trust and safety? Um, like what exactly is safety tech and how do they work with the trust and safety community? Child protection and trust and safety go together. What did surprise me, one thing that I forgot to mention before, one of the things that did surprise me coming into the trust and safety space and having worked in child protection for so long is that child protection is actually a small part of trust and safety. A lot of companies focus more in regards to disinformation, misinformation, hate speech, um, and, and that the behavior issues versus actually the child protection aspect. Um, what surprised me that trust and safety is so much, so big, and child protection is the small within that trust and safety community. The other the other great thing is that within the trust and safety community, you've got the safety tech providers. The safety tech providers are, in my mind, or the way I would describe them, are the solution providers that provide tech to big companies or small companies to say, here's how you can protect your brand, your customer base, your service by using our service and our product to ensure there is less harmful content on your on your system, or there's less illegal content, or there's less bullying happening, or less illegal content uploaded because you've got a tech system in place that scans for things. I guess you asked me this question, Maria, but what surprised you the most when you entered the adult space and came then into the trust and safety space? I mean, a lot surprised me when I went into the adult space. <laughs> Mainly, to be honest, in that I think it's always been like painted as this super uh, shady and unregulated thing, and all I saw in it was so much regulation. And then when I went into more the trust and safety space, I did start to notice that um, some things that I had kind of come to look at as the standard for safety were not necessarily what were for other types of platforms to see. Then I guess that the other thing that was a bit surprising to me in general was more from the moderation standpoint of things and how that whole uh, process works. Uh, like I also did some time as like a human moderator, but it was, uh, I'm very glad I did it because it made me quite aware of types of challenges that platforms face. But um, yeah, I think it's always full of surprises. There's a new surprise every week, really. I know. I agree with you that the human moderation is one of the most difficult things within the trust and safety community that people are doing. And, and I think that's something we can talk about more in details, probably at a later stage. Talked a little bit about the adult space and how did Freya's approach to moderation differ from other platforms that, that you worked at mm -hmm. or that you know about? I entered the space at like a pivotal time in that industry. Um, so I entered right when the new MasterCard regulations came in, uh, combined with the whole scare with the OnlyFans kickoff and Pornhub and MindGeek being kicked off of payment processing. There was a lot of fear in the industry at that point. Um, and I think everybody became very aware that they needed to very much up their game when it came to moderation or you could completely lose your, your business. We were kind of already 100% and above MasterCard compliant before that kind of happened um, because we kind of just tried to reimagine the way a platform like that approaches uh, moderation. Um, I never felt comfortable with the idea of having illegal content on my platform. Obviously, you can't always prevent it, but I was like, I want to make sure that I've done 
everything possible. So we came up with a pre-moderation approach. Obviously, pre-moderation means that you uh, get everything before it is uploaded, which sounds like a lot of work, um, which it, it can be. But if you set your infrastructure up in a specific way with AI and humans, it is it is doable. Um, so our site works similar to like a fan site. And what people don't realize is creators upload everything on those platforms into like a drive. And we basically just use the drive as the moderation system. And we were able to look at everything within two minutes max uh, with like priority queues, et cetera. And it ended up being super fast. We never once received a complaint from creators about it. It just ended up working quite well for us. But it's it's one of those infrastructures you need to do from the beginning. Uh, if you try to implement it later on, it, it doesn't work. It's an interesting one for sure, but it doesn't work for every platform. That's a, I think that's sometimes what the hard part is for some of these social media platforms now is that they have to go back and implement something that is harder to do, as you say, if you do it right from the beginning. And I guess that's what sort of safety by design is, is, you know, when you're putting a product together, if it's a social media platform or marketplace or anything else, think about the risks or the misuse of your platform so that you can put these yeah. steps in place. The other thing, I guess, is then what, what sort of worked or didn't work? So many. Yeah, I mean, there's obviously like a lot of trial and error and we had to like amend the system. I think we did have like a really good head start over for say social media platforms because they didn't have any, know what was going to happen when these platforms first started and it escalated and snowballed into this huge amount of content and growth. So we did have the advantage of seeing that and then amending from there. So slight advantage. But yeah, I mean, we had a lot of problems. One was trying to make sure that it was as fast as possible um, because you don't want to risk losing your creators or your, your users um, because not everybody thinks that safety is important, sadly. So yeah, the speed side of it, finding uh, human moderation companies to partner with where we also super um, challenging to find. Eventually, thankfully we did. And then another issue as well is finding the right kind of AI to do the scanning. I think now with all of the hype with like chat GBT and everything, uh, I think people look at AI as the magical cure for things. Yes, it's very good and it can do some amazing things and I'm sure it will get even better, uh, but it isn't a wonder cure for moderation. It does doesn't always work with certain types of classifiers and content. And specifically when it comes to more not safe for work content, there usually aren't AI models for that. Um, there's only AI models against it. So we had to end up developing our own things to deal with that issue. AI is, as you said, is something that we're, everybody's talking about and figuring it out by doing. But you, you, what's interesting with, with what you were saying at the beginning and, and how you sort of moved within your career is you started with the adult industry, but you also then became an activism on social media. And, and sort of how do you see that connection between the activism in so on social media and the internet safety space or trust and safety space? Because I used to always really not like social media personally, but it started because when you actually do have a company in that the adult space, things are really difficult in terms of your marketing. You can't market, you can't get investment, you can't bank, all these things. You can't get this kind of mainstream press coverage that other startups may get. So social media was really the only route to go to, to promote our cause. And a lot of what we did was tied into the various like issues with online safety because we just kept discovering all of these super fascinating problems and we wanted to make people aware of them. But yeah, so we had to do it via social media. That got a little bit tricky though, because you also get censored if you talk about things to do with the adult space. Obviously it's against um, TOS or not necessarily against, but it's in the gray zone. Um, so we also had to figure out how do we do that? And the way to be honest to do it was via comedy, <laughs> trying to get people interested following you. And then that they then do the investigation onto our other platforms where we talk about these important issues. And it ended up building a really interesting community, like two years later, where people still 
still want to engage on these topics. And then when I left the adult space, I wanted to keep keep going. Uh, I went into investment for a bit, which was like my quarter life crisis. <laughs> and then I had the opportunity to go back into safety. Uh, and it always super interested me throughout the experience with Freya. I mean, that activism and that aspect of internet safety has essentially been part of your career for so long, but how does that now fit in with the work that you do at T3K? For those that don't know, T3K does a lot of work in the law enforcement space around helping law enforcement and certain enterprises find harmful or illegal and appropriate content. Uh, now they're making a move into the safety tech space. Um, so with like social media, dating, um, all those types of sites. And that quite gelled with my existing skill set from Freya, because even though like adult is a, a different industry, it's still a social media platform. And there's a lot of similarities in terms of the content, the approach and the, the the network. So it kind of gelled in quite smoothly. Also, obviously, adult and not safe for work content is a huge issue for a lot of social media and other online platforms. And I'm quite familiar with what happens with those and how to find certain things uh, and trends in that space that not everybody might be aware of happens. Um, and yeah, so I guess like on terms of like, we've spoken a little bit about trust and safety. And then there's also this like, I think there's a lot of terminology thrown around in this space, which which might confuse some of like listeners. Um, so like, what would you describe as the safety tech as? Like, is that moderation? Is that AI? Like what exactly uh, is that? Yeah. So I think there are too, way too many terminologies thrown around with no, no real definitions with those terminologies. So I think safety tech is, is part of human moderation is the biggest part of moderating a social media platform. But I think it also includes then using AI or other technology that can help in that moderation. But again, like for me, it's the basics of whatever you need to do for the customers to have a good experience while they're on your social media platform or your marketplace platform or anywhere else. It's that aspect. That is the safety tech aspect of it. Moderation for all aspects that we've already talked about, hate speech, bullying, um, illegal content, if it's drugs or child protection, to, to then also building products that have the safety in mind because you don't want to do it afterwards as you're saying it's you want to do it right from the start so i think safety tech is is that aspect is majority is moderation but it's about the user experience what is that look like and how do you make sure that they have a fun time while they're on your platform in relation to to moderation and public opinion and, and viewpoints obviously it's not always something people are very aware of or think of uh, it's more like small thing uh, for people i've noticed that there's a lot of misconceptions around moderation and censorship. Um, would, what what are your thoughts on that? Like, do you view it as a form of like censorship, or how how does one get that balance between safety and then obviously free speech, etc.? I think we could talk about this particular question for probably a good week and still not get a good answer because it's such a difficult topic. It's not black and white. I think there's uh, ways we need to understand that the internet, going back to what you said right at the beginning, the internet is wild, wild west. We need to start building structures in place to be able to protect us as human beings while we're online. If that is through moderation, if that's through uh, giving up a little bit of privacy to ensure 
sure that other people are safe? And that's the question. How far do we go with it? That is the difficulty because, again, it's looking also at the at our general lives. We have the laws in place that allows us our privacy. If we're in our home, we can do whatever we want as long as nobody else under- knows what's going on. But as soon as you leave the house, someone else can see what you're doing. And if it's illegal, they may or may not call the police. It should be the same thing online, except we don't have a house online. I don't have my private space online. So how do we ensure that you have privacy at the same time enjoying the freedom that the internet is supposed to give you? And again, that's where I don't have the answers and I certainly don't want to try to find the answer now. It's more about understanding the complexity of it. It's not black and white. This is something we will grapple with, I think, for the next 10, 20 years. And I think that's also an issue is it is such like a philosophical matter. It's not a straightforward thing. And I think that too much nowadays in our society, especially with my generation, we have very short attention spans and we like to have everything kind of instant and know the answer. And this is just something where it is just such a complex issue and it's going to always be evolving. And then on the topic of things having to like evolve, when it comes to internet regulation, obviously there's a couple more governments at the moment trying to push things, new changes through, such as in the UK with the uh, Online Safety Act. Um, what's your view on the various types of like legislation? Like, Do you think that these are like answers? And do you also think that they're going to be able to adapt fast enough to the changing technologies? Because even if we look at the OSA, it's taken so long to get pushed through that there's new technology that's already been developed in the time being. Law can never work fast enough with the innovation and technology that we have. Therefore, laws should, I ideally be flexible as much as they can be, but precise to be able to say this or that. So to be able to ensure that the misinterpretation, there's no misinterpretation because that's what we're having at the moment is a lot of different types of interpretation of what this law if it's the, the Online Safety Act or if it's the DSA, the, the Digital Service Act, Marketing mm-hmm. Digital Act, um, even the AI Act that the European Union is still discussing. Already in, enough mis- or not misinterpretation, but there are different types of interpretation of it. Companies, as well as regulators, will interpret it in their own way, mm-hmm. which then again means we don't have standards, we don't have anything. Do we need these regulations? I believe so, yes. The question is how far do we go because it's a pendulum of going too far either to the to to one side either to the left or to the right um and we have to figure out how do we balance it so that we try to stick into the middle as much as possible it's a tough task for anybody why we need to work at it on a day-to-day basis thing i wanted to ask you is is how you see ai is is all over this place since since last year but how do you balance the ai with the human element and the human moderation to it because that's also a huge time that's like a like could be like six podcast episodes it's it's a difficult one like i feel like that's the start to all questions in this episode <laughs> um i mean everybody we all know, are a little bit aware of the issues associated with human moderation i mean it's, it's a tough job and obviously we want to try to limit the strain um that happens for human moderators um that being said i think in the current state of ai it is not yet in a place to fully take over human moderators um it 
doesn't yet fully understand certain cultural nuances, certain ironies. Um, it's not necessarily able yet to keep up with some very fast uh, adapting trends. So you still do need that human element in there. And I don't think that can fully yet be underestimated the importance of it. I think that there is going to be some really exciting innovations in the AI space when it comes to moderation within the next couple of years. But again, it's just not yet at that one fixed solution. Right. And I think that's the tough one as well. But how, how do you see AI improving or what should be, be improving within the within that space to make it more efficient? That one thing will be the contextual understanding uh, and like how those models are trained to be able to do so. Uh, and probably the most important thing is the speed uh, of retraining and custom classification. Um, so part, like online platforms partnering with more um, various AI companies in order to like specialize their classifiers um, so that they can meet the moderation needs as best as possible, really. I think that's the thing that's going to make it advance faster. Um, at the moment, I think, again, it depends on the platform and their approach, but there's various different types of AI models that some with better accuracy than others. For instance, as you know, working at T3K, they have one of the best like CSAM classifiers, for instance, which is a really hard one to train. Um, so more online platforms getting the best classifiers that they, they possibly can. Yeah, and I think that's the training part, right? The AI needs to be trained more with data that isn't influenced by humans in a way. Because anything that we give to AI we give it at with some bias because we are humans. And so it's difficult to train without bias, but that's something we need to learn to do to be able to, for AI to be as neutral as possible. And as you said, it's CSAM or child sexual abuse material is probably one of the hardest to train because of getting access to the data to be able to analyze how it actually works. And that's why T3K created a mathematical equation to create the classifier so that it is more accurate than using just the data from the image, the if it's an MD, MD5 or a hash value, because that changes all the time. With a math, mathematical equation, it stays. It, that's it. It doesn't change. One and one is always two. And I think that's what's so exciting about the T3K uh, classifier on CSAM is that it has that element to it. There's one other thing as well, though, people with the, the AI that will be incredibly important for, for platforms to think about and to implement is some form of a more like appeal and democratic process within moderation decisions. Um, moderation always can have mistakes in it. It's just, it's, it's not, I mean, it's not human, but you know what I mean? Things happen. And I think that it would be important for platforms to have a process by which users can appeal the decisions properly, uh, because you don't see that on every platform. And sometimes, especially when you're using certain social medias where there's definitely the illusion of free speech, it can be quite harmful or upsetting as well. Um, so I think that would help to make platforms safer as well as just increasing the user experience, which as you said, it's, it's part of trust and safety. So going into that, how would you improve the Reporting because coming from the child protection space, we always said every social media platform needs to have an easy button where you can report abuse. But it's and you you're coming from an angle or you came from the adult space where it's not abuse; it's more content that maybe not everybody wants to talk about or see, etc. So, what is that reporting mechanism that should? How could they make it better? Because it's not just a button in every on every site. 
yeah i mean like if something's flagged i agree like take it take it down but i think like that mistakes can happen so there still needs to be the dialogue to bring it back up and like some form of review um for example i had content taken off one of my social media platforms when it happened it didn't really make much sense it was a street interview and it was a discussion on um stds and why there's a high rate in europe for them so i would have understood why it might have been taken down for sexual reasons but it was taken down for hate speech which made absolutely no sense but then when you go onto the 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 i don't even know how, what the word is like the notification not even like a small box for me to write my explanation in so i think even having like a small little box where you can at least somebody write two or three sentences as to why they don't fully understand that decision or or to provide that context i think that makes a big difference doesn't necessarily mean that you bring it back up but it will make the user at least feel more heard in that process i mean on freya we had multiple instances where we did not allow something but what was super important for us was let's have the conversation with the the creator as like well what's going on here i think that's quite like important especially if we're so concerned also making things safer but protecting freedom of expression and speech and and coming a little bit back to to ai in and, and I guess we, we both could answer this, but it's how, why do you think that we're hesitant? And I say we as being human, uh, general users of the internet, but also the social media platforms, we're hesitant in using AI to some extent in the trust and safety work. Because, and I guess that's the question of what is it that we're so scared of with AI? Is it because we can't control it? Is it because we don't know it enough? What are the reasons that we're not embracing this more than we already have? I I think some of it is lack of understanding of how it really works. Again, it's like a buzzword that gets thrown about a lot and people have like a vague idea of what it is, but you ask a lot of people, how does AI work? I don't think a lot of people can answer it. So again, it's like a little bit of the fear of the unknown and all read those a little bit fear mongering headlines about like AI is going to ruin everything and it's going to ruin humanity. And so I think like there's that side of it for sure. And I think in terms of sometimes with moderation, safety tech and AI, I think that some people, not all, they rather not know what's going to be on there. I agree with you, and I think that it's mainly because we don't understand AI. It's there's no real understanding, even though AI's been so been around for a long time. Yeah. But majority of us have only heard it in the last twelve months. Exactly, um, and I think people don't realize how much it's been entrenched in their their lives. Be that with yeah. search engines, etc. It's always kind of been there for a while now. I also, you know, we've mentioned a couple of different regulations within that are happening, and there are many within Europe. Um, but I wonder. How do you see that impacting those regulations, impacting the trust and safety space? It's already been causing a big impact before it even got passed. Because obviously, like Ofcom, etc., they've been in conversations with various platforms for a while throughout the discussion of the on online safety bill now, um, Online Safety Act. Uh, I think platforms are getting a little bit nervous, some of them, in, in terms of what they need to be doing. I do think that this means a very different thing for the larger companies to the smaller ones, um, because it is resource intensive to change your trust and safety infrastructure. So for instance, Meta, Twitter, etc., they have a larger amount of resources than for say these smaller marketplaces and startups where it will be a little bit more of a shock, I'd say, to them to have to, to implement these things. I think it's going to be super interesting to see how the how the OSA goes and act now, because I think there's a couple things in there that will be hard to implement fully when other countries don't have those in place. So that, that's going to be interesting to see. I'm curious to see how it will 
will adapt. Um, what do you think about it? Do you think that it's going to be a bit of a seamless uh, integration into it? Or do you think it's going to cause an issue with other countries not having the same policy? I, I think it's going to cause an issue in the short term because people are grappling with it. As you said, I think the big companies are trying to figure out, okay, what do we need to focus on to be compliant so they don't get the big fines? The smaller companies are looking at it going, okay, that's not applicable, but it may become applicable later if we become too big. So we need to look at it now and understand it. And I think, as you said, I think there, there are things within the regulations or within the laws that are that have now passed that are going to take years to implement. And at Excellent. that point, it's already going to be too late because we've moved on to something else. So is it an ad hoc thing? Is it a voluntary aspect that the companies just start doing it because there's no other way around it? Um, and I think that's the tough part. And I think Looking at, you know, the trust and safety space, as we've said, is, is new and it's already gone through so many different cycles over the last 10 years. And I think the next five to 10 years will be really interesting to watch because of so many things happening that we are reliant so much more on technology and the online space as ever before. And therefore, we need to ensure that we have these measures and these structures in place. And I think that's mm -hmm. the tough part. And that's what we're working towards with T3K and, and social media platforms, the nonprofits, the law enforcement, the governments, etc. And that's why we all need to come together. And I think it's also important for more of the general public to be a bit more familiar with these types of things, because it really does affect everyone, I think, in deeper ways than one may initially realize. Um, so I think we've all seen in the news over the last year that there's been a lot of big tech layoffs. And I think it's been a bit interesting to see that a lot of that has been more in the trust and safety space. Have you noticed that that's caused like a shift in the landscape or what are your thoughts? It's caused a, I think people are maybe more cautious to go into trust and safety just because it is volatile. Um, but that being said, I think, you know, as you said, the layoffs layoffs from, from the big tech were sort of at the beginning of 2023, end of 2022. And what we've seen, at least at the end of 2023 and even now and we're only beginning of January of 24 that there are so many job openings within the trust and safety space that now they start trying to fill those spaces again because they realize they actually need the trust and safety. You could go back to what we were talking about, the definition of trust and safety, and say trust and safety is there to protect your brand from any bad press. Because trust and safety ensures that your customers have a good experience. They don't get, they don't have harmful content or illegal content that they're sharing or viewing or anything else. Therefore, the me you don't get bad press and. That's the important part. So in a way, trust and safety is also a brand protection aspect. Um, and I think that's where more companies are thinking about it that way and saying, we need to do this to be able to protect our brand that will then allow us to make even more money than they already are. Because it's, it's like I had somebody say something quite interesting where people said that trust and safety, safety tech, it's a cost business. Um, and I thought that that was super interesting because I kind of look at more of a, as a profit uh, space because ultimately if you don't have that in place as a platform, it can do so much damage. And it's in, in a way it's intangible, right? Trust and safety is not some, it, it costs the company's money to do it but the benefit is so much greater than the actual cost itself because it goes into the brand it goes into sales it goes into customer retention it goes into all of these things 
and people don't realize it that way. And so that's an education we need to do to ensure that the CEOs and the, the, the decision makers understand the importance of trust and safety, not as a cost, but as a benefit to the business model. Yeah. So one of the biggest debates in this space is encryption, sometimes labeled versus online privacy. So it's later in this series, um, showing kind of both sides of the debate. Um, but what are your, your thoughts on this? Do you think that they can be in balance or do you think that something's going to have to, to give? I think they should in balance. My worry is that it will not be that something will give because something will, and that will maybe change it to the extreme or to one side and won't be balanced anymore. Now, again, it's the same conversation or the same topic or, or the same issue that we, that we talked about protection and the privacy of encryption and privacy. How much are, how much are we as human beings willing to compromise on so that every user on the internet is protected? But I give up part of my privacy to do that. Or is it to say, no, I, I want all of my privacy. I want everything encrypted because I want to do whatever I want. Is that the new, as at the analogy that I was saying earlier about the house, we don't have a private house on the internet. Is encryption going to be that of, hey, now I have my own house online where I can do whatever I want and it's encrypted and nobody knows. But as soon as you open that door, whatever that door is, then you're back into the main internet world and anybody and everybody can see. Another question, it's, it's a $64 million question that no one has the answer to. And I think it's something we will grapple with again for the next five, 10 years, because we're going to swing both ways in the pendulum. Exactly. I mean, like, I don't feel like I have a hard set uh, opinion because I personally don't feel as though I'm in formed enough on both sides of it to have one uh, yet. I think though, again, you can, you can see both, both sides of it. The only thing I would say is especially with like younger generation, generations who've grown up with more and more tech, I think that we're becoming very, giving away our, our digital rights a little too easily without a second thought is the only thing I'd say. And that maybe there does need to be more discussions around that and what exactly it means when one does sign a terms of service. But yeah, I think it's definitely an interesting debate. Like you said, there's no straightforward answer to it and it's very complex. It, exactly. And I, I think, as you said, it's, it, we're going going to go, there's going to be one thing that's going to then decide one way or another, how imbalanced we're going to be on this topic. And yes, a lot of people are making uh, decisions because of, of, of one particular issue. If that is child protection or, or something else, they just say, look, that's the only way to solve it. We're encrypting everything. That's their one way to handle it. There's so many other ways to handle it, but that's the low hanging fruit, if you like, um, to some extent. And it's going to be difficult. And I guess as a final thought, uh, like for the for the listeners, uh, what would you kind of want people's main takeaway to be about like what online safety is and what they should really start to maybe like think about or, or be aware of? Well, I think as well, it's something you and I both have said over the last hour. Be aware that when you're on online, behave the same way as you do on the real world. Don't, don't change your behavior because it's still, you still say thank you or, or you still look right or left when you cross the street. You should still do the same when you're online. It's the same people. Just because you're physically not in the same room doesn't mean it doesn't hurt or it's not relevant. So I think for for, for general, for, for the public, I think it's be aware that your behavior online has the same impact if not worse than in real world, when you're using swear words on the street or you're 
starting a fight or, or, or you're bullying somebody in school because it is that it's still, a, it's just in a different manner for, for the intimate safety space and trust and safety space. I think we need to communicate better what we do and how, why we do this to ensure the public gets an understanding of the need for the trust and safety community as well as integrating it into the business model of any organization. It's like, I want to remember, there's one human moderator that described it to me quite interesting, where he said, people don't see me, but I'm basically the police. Well, that's, it is, but the question is, should moderators be the police? Exactly. That's a whole other debate. But and um... I know that's a whole other, a whole other <laughs> discussion because it's, wait, they're not trained for it, or they are trained, but not to be a policeman online but we don't have enough police to be able to just monitor everything online. Therefore, we're going back to the question of how much technology do we use with human human moderators to be able to, to, and I don't want to use the word monitor, but at least look at what's happening online so that we keep ourselves true to being good human beings exactly. and not change the behavior. Takeaway for users is to to think about what your like digital rights are, uh, to think for a second as well about like what platform guidelines are, what, yes. and who's, who's doing the, who's doing the work to keep it safe. I think yes. it's just a good thing to spend a little bit of time thinking about. But yes, absolutely. I think there's digital rights is the same as, as knowing your own rights as a human being, mm -hmm. and it should be part of that conversation and people need to know about it. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Caroline, and thank you everyone for listening. We hope that you will tune into the next episode episode of our podcast.